There will be We're live. There is. Oh, we're live, are we? Okay, pay, mouth, blow, scatter, edge. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. Oh, good stuff. What a, what a refreshing word to hear every week. Oh, let's see what we have here. Um, we've got that. I think I'll read that. Um, and we've also got one year in Christian history. Let me turn that off. Okay, good. Um, let's see here. Um, we've got a couple prayer requests. Deborah Young is has a grandbaby coming in seven months. And she's asking for prayer for health for it and hoping to be able to live close to help support her daughter-in-law. So she's asked for prayer. And then Suzanne just got COVID. Okay, and she has no pay until better. I won't tell why, but you can guess if you don't get paid by some companies. Um, also, she is afraid of returning to delivery work uh, and re-injuring herself. She's been injured and she's been convalescing, and uh, so she has an opportunity for another position. And um, uh, I won't give the company's name, but anyway, it was a funny, funny name for a company. It made me think of Gomer Pyle. That's all I'll say. Anyway, um, uh, we uh, want to pray for her to hopefully get that because, um, uh, you know, going back and doing what you were doing that got you hurt in the first place is not a great thing. Um, the Queen died today over in England. So um, uh, this is a perfect day to read this because this is a poem by an English doctor and he, uh, he, uh, writes about something English, but he makes a point at the end. So it's gonna sound like I'm just reading something that has no point, but um, I'll read this first and then I'll give you the point. <clears throat> he says, it's from Dr. Nick Krasner who wrote this. I'm as English as English can be, cannot survive without my tea. It all feels finer or thinner in beautiful China, uh, a lovely cup of tea. My exam results are really bad my wardrobe looks really sad. I'm going to fail, and I find I need bail, but at least I've got my tea. The bank says I'm in debt. He says I should cry and then fret. He doesn't really care that my cupboard is bare, but at least I have my tea. Inflation has blown off my roof. The politicians have all gone aloof. They are locking us in when complaining's a sin, but at least I have my tea. There's an asteroid heading to Earth. A new infection has created, been created in Perth. The country's a panic and newsreaders manic, but at least I have my tea. Armageddon has arrived at our door. A world war has become like before, or begun like before. We are all about to be dead. There's only one thing to be said. Thank God I still have my tea. And he said, for believers, substitute the word tea for the Lord. There you go. So that's uh, that's his hopeful message to people. Uh, the UK lost their queen, and uh, they're mourning over there today because of that. And uh, so I thought I'd bring a little bit of a, I've been waiting for the right day to read that, and today was it. 
Um, so uh, we'll go ahead and read this day in Christian history, and then we'll get started here. Let's see. Um, today is September eighth. Uh, eighth. Okay. Let's see here. There's the ninth. Eighth. Does being born into a Christian family make one a Christian? Well, when I grew up, I got to tell you, I told everybody I'm a Christian because I was in a Christian family. I had no idea what it meant. Uh, John Ryland Jr. was born in 1753 to an English family with a noteworthy Christian heritage. He was from a long line of dissenters, evangelicals who refused to conform to the Church of England. His great-grandfather, also named John Ryland, had been a member of a Baptist church in, church in Oxfordshire, <clears throat> and all of his children had been believers, including John's grandfather, Joseph. After Joseph's first wife died childless, he married Freelove Collett, a member of a Baptist church in Gloucestershire. I know that's not the way you pronounce it. Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire. Okay, whatever. Their oldest child, John, was John Ryland Jr.'s father. <coughs> Excuse me. John Ryland Sr. was converted to Christ in a revival that swept through the Baptist community on Burton-on-the-Water, England, when he was 18. Along with John Sr., 40 others personally trusted Christ for their salvation and joined the Baptist church there. John Sr. studied for the ministry and became a pastor of the Baptist Church of Northampton, England, where he had 20 years of fruitful ministry. His friends included George Whitfield, the great evangelist, Augustus Toplady, the, rock, the author of Rock of Ages, and John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. <clears throat> Thank you. And uh, let's see here. John Ryland Jr., his son, grew up in a home of spiritual privilege since from his earliest years he was able to observe some of the world's most well-known Christians in his home. One of John Jr.'s earliest memories was of visiting an Anglican rector friend of his father's at the age of five and reading him the 23rd Psalm woo, in Hebrew. At the age of 13, John Jr. began to think seriously about spiritual things. In addition to pastoring the church, his father also ran a boys' boarding school. One autumn evening, young Ryland was talking to one of his friends from the school, a boy who had recently found salvation in Christ. The friend had begun meeting regularly with two other boys in the evenings for prayer and fellowship. During his conversation with John Jr., he suddenly realized that it was time to meet his two friends for prayer and quickly excused himself. Ryland was deeply hurt by this, thinking his friend was rejecting him. The next day, John Ryland avoided him and later gave as his reason the friend's sudden departure the night before. The boy then explained why he had felt uh, compelled to leave so quickly. He said that he and his prayer partners were talking of something better. That phrase, something better, stuck in Ryland's mind. From his evangelical upbringing, he knew that phrase meant Jesus Christ and the salvation of their souls. The more that Ryland thought about it, the more he wondered. <clears throat> would his friends go to heaven and he be left behind? The encounter triggered a period of spiritual turmoil for young Ryland. One day he would feel that he had the joy of salvation, the next he would have terrible doubts. It was during this period of personal struggle that George Whitfield, or Whitefield, I never know which one it is, the great Anglican evangelist came on a Saturday to visit Ryland Sr. Whitefield preached the next day, September 8th, 1767 at the Castle Hill Church in Northampton, and young Ryland went to hear him. At that service, he personally gave his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Five days later, Ryland was baptized by his father in the River Nain, just down from Castle Hill Church, where it stood. In spite of his godly lineage, John Ryland Jr. needed to trust Christ personally himself. He became a Baptist pastor like his father, and in 1783, at the same place in the River Nain, where he himself had been baptized, he baptized William Carey, the father of modern missions. Do you know people who assume that they are Christians because they have grown up in a Christian family? How about you? Have you ever made the assumption about yourself? Being born in a Christian family no more makes a person a Christian than being born in a garage makes one an automobile. Becoming a Christian is a personal decision. We all must make our own commitment to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, should say begotten son. I'll tell about that in a minute. So everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, God's firstborn son is who? Jesus. No. It says right there in uh, Exodus 4.22, I believe, Israel is my firstborn son. Uh, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. And so there you go with that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to uh, come to you in prayer, to pray for those people we've already mentioned a moment ago, and to pray for uh, the people of the UK who are right now grieving the loss of their 96-year-old monarch. She's been in the throne for many, many years, and they're certainly grieving over that. So we would lift them up, and we would pray uh, that uh, her, her son, who is the king now, will change his attitude about many things and put you first in his life and that he will be not the defender of faith but the defender of the faith. Uh, Lord, we would pray that this would be the case uh, knowing that it probably is not the case because of the way the world is heading but we do lift him up for that purpose right now. And Lord, we thank you for this class. We thank you for the chance to enter into the book of Colossians and we thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, it is such a precious book as a part of your word. And so we would pray that if there's anything that is taught that is incorrect, you would alert us to that so we would not have something that is incorrect in our presentation. Lord, we pray this that you'll be glorified, and we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so I've got my long-haired beard. I'm sorry, my long-haired <laughs> bandana on again. This is best present ever. Best so, present. Yeah. There you go. So I, I thought I'd wear it because they're going to be gone for three weeks. And I thought, well, uh, it'll give you a bad memory when you travel around the U.S. How's that? Okay. So we've got Brian and Monica today, and they brought somebody with them. Mitchell. Mitchell. Is, is this the son? Because he looks a lot like you. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't like a younger brother or something. Good to meet you, Mitchell. Wow. Praise the Lord. Um, uh, let's see. We're in Colossians, and we're in verse... 126. We yep. thought we might be done with chapter 2 by now, but we're still lagging behind. So we're in I chapter remember one. a few weeks ago saying we'll be done with Colossians in no time flat. Yeah, well, <laughs> We're almost done. I mean, we're, we're burning up the pages, so we are. we're on page 2 of Colossians, so that's we're really moving along. Mm -hmm. um, okay. This is uh, Colossians 126, and you start wherever you want. I'll start at the beginning of the paragraph, Paul's labor for the church. Now, I rejoice and what was suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. 26. 
the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Okay, uh, very close. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So what we do, I don't know if you know, I, if you watch any of the Bible studies, but he reads the Alexandrian text and then I read from the Byzantine. So you can see the differences between the two. Um, uh, just so you know, um, mom came in, which is nice, but she's sitting behind no Burke. So Burke is fine. He's, uh, he, he had a lawnmower issue and so he was waiting it out. And that, he said, I think it was yesterday or early this morning, he might not be here. So don't panic because I know people love Burke. And, now, I always get these emails if I don't say something. Is, is Burke okay? <laughs> okay. The problem was with the lawnmower, not, not Burke. Burke. Not Burke. No, it was okay, something good. with the lawnmower, but I don't know what. I, I, it was like he, he told me, and I was just like reading through it, and I'm like, okay, he won't be here, and that's all I need to know. I don't need to know if it's parts or if it's you know a new engine or if it's whatever, but it is his lawnmower, not yes, him. Not okay, him. I'll give you some commentary on verse 126 now. <laughs> and what we do... Uh, you know, I type a commentary every day of my life. I'm in the book of Acts, and I'm in Acts 10. I think we posted verse 13 or 10, 12 this morning. Um, but I type them 10 days in advance, and then I think about them. And anyway, um, I've been doing this for years. years. I did the whole New Testament, and I never saved it until, like, I don't know, whatever. And so somebody said, you should save these. And so I redid the whole New Testament. So we're, uh, uh, these are my commentaries from there. So I don't have to remember these things. I've written it down. And when somebody emails me, this is what I send them. I say, you know, I've already answered that. I, you know, so there you go. And I say, if you have any more questions, let me know and we'll talk about it. But anyway, that's, so I always read my commentaries and, uh, uh, they, they, and then follow rabbit trails. And then, well, it, very rarely, but we do get into a rabbit trail once in a while. So, uh, some, uh, I'm sorry, verse 126, Paul continues with words concerning his ministry. The previous verse, taken together with this one, says, Of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. And then, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Okay, so that's where we're at. In fulfilling the word of God, the mystery that he now writes about becomes the subject. The explanation of what this mystery is comes in the next verse, it being the idea that salvation is not only come to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Okay, so we have this mystery. I would like to stop right there because um, uh, he's talking, I, I mentioned it, and I will mention it more obviously in the next verse, but uh, it being the idea that salvation has come not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Now this is a mystery. It was a mystery because there was no idea that salvation would come to the Gentiles as far as Israel was concerned. If you read, and I said this I think last week, if you read the book of Isaiah, you would know that God was going to use Christ, the Messiah, to reveal himself and God to the Gentiles because it's very clear. It says it two or three times, uh, yet it is too small of a thing for uh, me to uh, redeem or bring back the, uh, uh, the children of Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. And he, he says that and he says it uh, about the Gentiles again as well somewhere. So it, it was known, but it wasn't known. It was a mystery. How is this going to come about? What would bring it about? And um, that reminds me that in Acts chapter 10, uh, the subject is, and we talked about that last week, 
the subject is the conversion of the Gentiles. Okay, uh, the great thing like a sheet, which is the same word means sail, and that's exactly what is being portrayed is a sail coming down with all of these um, uh, beasts of the earth and all the fowl of the earth and everything. And then he says, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, nothing unclean or whatever is ever entered. And let me just read it. He says, um, but uh, Peter said, no, not so, Lord, for I, I have never had anything. I'm sorry. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Um, I'll try to remember after the next verse to bring this back in. But that is clearly, already you know that that is a depiction of the message going out to the Gentiles. All right, you can just, you can figure that out if you sit down and you think about the verse without anything to follow at after it. But uh, having said that, I'll try to come back here and talk a little more about that, but I don't want to get too far down because uh, I'm not a rabbit trail type of person. Anyway, <laughs> anyway um, so anyway, um, it was a mystery. It, it was um, something that, a mystery is something that cannot be known until it is revealed. The idea of a rapture would never have been known unless it was revealed. It will happen, the Bible says it will happen, but behold, I show you a mystery. And then Paul explains what that mystery is in 1 Corinthians 15. It's something that cannot be deduced apart from it being specially revealed by God through his people, meaning his apostles, okay? That's a mystery. And so um, uh, here we go. In fulfilling the word of God, the mystery that he now writes about becomes the subject. The explanation of what this mystery is is coming in the next verse, it being the idea that salvation has come not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. Paul describes this as a mystery. In the Bible, a mystery is something which has been hidden in God's wise counsel until a time when he determines to reveal it. It is something that could not be known apart from his special revelation. Uh, special revelation is something that comes from God. So is general revelation, but it comes in a different way. General revelation is God created the world. He created man. Man is sentient. He can think. He can understand. He can deduce things. He can logically take issues and go through them and come to conclusions. Okay, when he created the world, he created the world with trees. And trees have fruit. And fruit uh, falls to the ground. You eat it, and then there are seeds, and the seeds pop up into more trees. And everything has a purpose. It's not like it just randomly happened. Okay, and because of that, we can say there's a tree. Why is there a tree there when there's no tr when there should be no tree at all? There shouldn't be anything, but there is a tree. And because there's a tree, there must be somebody that created that tree. And you look around, and you say, well, there's a sky, and there's ground, and there's all of these things. They didn't make themselves. Something had to make them. And so you can logically deduce things about God and about His nature by looking at the world. That is general revelation. God is revealing himself through what he has done. But that only takes you so far. Um, I talked about him in the past as Aristotle. Aristotle was able with just general revelation, he had no special revelation from God, he was able to deduce things about God that people in the Christian world today have never even considered. They know that God is there. They know that he sent Jesus, and that's about the limit of their understanding. They go and listen to a sermon on Sunday, and they don't think these things through. Aristotle, without 
any scripture at all, just by general revelation, was able to come this close to understanding the nature of God. Things that, like I said, you have never even imagined he talked about. He wrote about those things. General revelation will get you to a point, but it will get you no farther. And you cannot have an intimate relationship with God without him specially revealing himself to you. That is special revelation. There's all kinds of special revelation in the Bible. You've got the prophetic word, and you've got um, uh, miracles and signs and wonders. Okay, those are God's special revelation, which transcend general revelation. Okay, you've got the prophet speaks, and then this thing happens. Well, you can't know the future. You can make deductions about the future, like, um, what is it, the Simpsons. They're very good about saying what's going to happen, and then something they drew eight years ago is exactly what happens. But they know how to make general deductions about things, okay? And that's why people are always, well, they're like prophets. No, they just can figure things out. A prophet that gives a prophecy that cannot be figured out, could never have been known, that is special revelation. And then enter Jesus Christ into the, the stream of time and <coughs> existence. He is what we would call special revelation par excellence. Everything about him could not have been known without God sending him and revealing these things to us. Okay, so that's, that is special revelation, and that is a part of what a mystery is. A mystery is something that is God's special revelation. Types, shadows, and pictures, all of which we see every Sunday in our sermons, of it may be seen in the Old Testament. But until those were explained through the word of Christ, they remained hidden as a mystery. Now, I have no idea. You know, I, I do these sermons. I don't other than reading commentaries about the passage, which are not typological commentaries, very rarely do any of the, the scholars that I read give you typology, although John Gill generally will, and he's not really correct quite often, but he gives interesting uh, you know, pictures of Christ, and he was back in the 1600s. He didn't know what the world would be like today. He didn't know what would be, uh, uh, where Israel would be. Okay, so he was a little bit limited, but he comes up with some good pictures. Once in a while, you'll see some others, but mostly the, the scholars I read are giving you the mechanics of the Hebrew. They're giving you um, references to other passages in the Bible. They're giving you um, historical references, things like that. And so I have no idea when I type a sermon if anybody else has come to the conclusions I've come to. I have no idea. You know, all I know is that when I type a sermon, to me, the information is unique. And so when I present it, I'm thinking, you know, I, I know that it's correct. I'm not going to give you something unless I am certain that this is what God is telling us. And these Joshua sermons are so filled with the richness of what God is doing. They're so beautiful. But this is how God is working. He's given these types in these shadows so that after Christ came, you would say, I understand what he was telling us and why he was telling us that. And that's why it is so maddening that the Jews haven't called on Christ yet. Paul explains that in, I think it's Corinthians, where he says, to this day when they read Moses, they have a veil, but the veil is lifted in Christ. They rejected Christ, and so they will never they will never understand why God put those stories in the Old Testament. They're obscure. They don't connect well. They don't make any sense. I read a Jewish commentary, a guy, he's alive today, some guy that decided that uh, he was going to read the Bible, and he said, this book must be from God because it makes absolutely no sense otherwise. And that was his evaluation. Nobody would write this book because it, it doesn't make any sense. 
it's it, it doesn't flow properly. It's got all these things that don't fit. And of course, that's his conclusion because he doesn't know Jesus. But once you know Jesus, everything starts to form into this beautiful picture of what God is doing. Types, shadows, and pictures of it may be seen in the Old Testament. But until those were explained through the word of Christ, John 5, 49, John, uh, uh, let me take you there very quickly. All right, just so you know what I'm referring to, it says here at John 5, I think it's 49 anyway, he says, I'll go first up to this one here, and he says in John 5, 38, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. He's saying that the words that you're reading speak of me. And then he goes down in verse 45. I said 49, it's 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. And we've seen that since Genesis 1.1. Everything in every one of those passages. Why would he pick this story about Reuben out picking mandrakes, you know, and then Leah and uh, Rachel arguing over it and making a deal to sleep with her. One gets to sleep with the husband tonight and the other one doesn't because of the mandrakes. It doesn't make any sense. Why would God include that in his, his word? Unless it is telling us something extra. And when you find out who Christ is, you can understand the extra. You get the picture. But without that, you'd have no idea. Why does uh, uh, Genesis 38, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Why is God telling us that Judah had a son and he had a wife from the daughter of Shua and then he died because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord and then the second son did this thing and so the Lord killed him too and then he has another son and he doesn't want to give it to her because she's already apparently killed two of his sons so she tells him and then the next thing you know he's out walking along and there's this seemingly prostitute who's looking for him and then he goes into her has a child all of that why is that story in there it's there to tell us about jesus actually it's not only that it's there to tell us the three things that she asked for is you know i'll, I'll let you do this but i need you know something until you send me the goat okay you promised me something for dinner and until i get that i want a a token and so what is she say, I, he says, well, what can I give you? She says, give me your signet, your cord, and your staff. And those three things point to Christ. And the word that is used in there is a very rare word, aravon, aravon. And then that word happens to transfer into the Greek, aravon. That never happens. It's very, very rare for a Hebrew word to go directly into the Greek in the New Testament. It's used three times in Genesis 38. It's used three times by Paul in the New Testament. And it tells you what the story is about. That one word makes the entire passage come out. Types and pictures, all speaking of Jesus. It's all about him if we just look at it from that perspective. So, um, uh, uh, until those were explained through the word of Christ, they remained hidden as a mystery. The book of Jonah, for example, gives a picture of what Paul is referring to, but only by looking at the story through the lens of Christ Jesus can it be properly understood. Now, when we got to the end of the book of Jonah, I remember it was the last sermon in the book of Jonah, and I actually stood right there, and I, before I gave it, I, I almost apologized. I said, I'm going to give you something, and I believe this is correct, but 
there isn't a single translation that matches what I'm going to give you. And so I hope you'll bear with me. I'm not in any way trying to twist scripture, but I really believe this is what it's saying. And Bob walked up after the sermon. He said something so funny to me. I, 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 if I say, then it makes it look like I think I'm right about the sermon, but I wouldn't have given the sermon unless I think I'm right about the sermon. But uh, the story of Jonah is telling us a story about Jesus, and it's telling us a story about Jesus' relationship with Israel, okay? That's very clear, and that last couple of uh, verses in chapter 4 very, very clearly portray that, if they are translated properly. So, um, by only by looking at the story through the lens of Christ can that be properly understood. Thus, Paul says that the mystery his words, Colossians 1.26, has been hidden from ages and generations. Vincent's word studies notes that this term includes the unit and the factors, the aeon or the age of being made up of generations, okay? He goes on to say that before the beginning of the ages of the world, the counsel of God was ordained but not concealed because there were no human beings from whom to conceal it. The concealment began from the beginning of the world with the entrance of subjects to whom it could be a fact. In other words, does, yeah, okay. In other words, God determined from eternity past what he would do and the plan was fixed. We can know that because there is what in God? No change, no change in God, okay. God doesn't get angry. God doesn't get happy. He doesn't love you one day and not love you another in the way that we do. If there is change in God, then that means that there is time involved with God. And God is outside of time. He is the creator of time, space, and matter. Okay, God knows everything, everything. He always has, he always will. If God gets angry, that's a process happening in the stream of time. And so when it says that God, you know, is angry at Israel, it's because Israel has changed in relation to God. And he is telling us this in his word in anthropomorphic uh, means. In other words, it's uh, using man's ideas and man's terminology so that we can understand him, okay? When it says that the sun rises, the sun does not rise. Does everybody know that? The earth turns the sun is over here, and from our perspective, the sun rises. And so that is God using anthropomorphism for our benefit. When he lines up the tabernacle or the temple in the land of Israel, it's going east and west and north and south. And then he uses the term the four corners of the earth. Does the earth have four corners? No. no. Okay, the earth is a globe, and we know that. So all of these things God is using for our benefit. But he's using Canaan as a reference because the tabernacle is facing east and west, which means that the north is going to be on the left and the south is going to be on the right. Okay, and so we know these things have purpose for understanding what God is doing in redemptive history based on that, okay? The, the points of the compass, the types of rocks he uses, the, the uh, use of water, all of these symbolism and types are telling us a story. God knew all of these things before he created. God doesn't have a nose. He doesn't know what things smell like, but he, he knows what they smell like, but it's not that we are burning incense in the temple. 
in order for him to be pleasing when he smells a pleasing aroma. He's saying that for our benefit, but the fact is that that incense is made out of certain things, every single ingredient of which points to Christ. And so these are things that he has done for us. These are the things that God determined before he created anything. And why did he do that? We're going to have forever and ever and ever to find out. But I, for the life of me, I was walking today, stewing over the way of the world and the things that are going on in the world. And I say the same thing that David says all the time. I, I, I get angry and I say, Lord, what is it that you see in us? I cannot fathom why you would do this. Why would you even bother? We're so corrupt. We're, we've proven it. Every nation that has ever existed has just gone down a bad path. You've had to wipe it out. Another nation comes along, establishes it. You know, on your, your wonderful word, 200 and some years later, we're just like all of ancient Greece. We're, we're worse than them in the perversions that we're putting out there. Okay, why would God even bother with us? I have no answer to that question, but he did do it. And he was willing to step out of the eternal realm, unite with his creation, and go to the cross for us. There must be a purpose. And I, I try to think of what value, as I said, David said it, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you notice him, I think, or care for him. Take note. Care for him. Care for him. Okay. I, I have no idea. I try to think it through because I know my own heart. My friend writes a, a, a prophecy commentary once a week and he sends it out. And I love to read it. And then I always send him a response. I don't want him to, you know, just think I ignored him. So I always send him a response. And he said in one of his commentaries, talking about the wickedness of the human heart, and I was more specific in my response to him. I said, the wickedness in Charlie's human heart. I said, I, I, I can't understand it, the depth of the wickedness. And he came back and he said, you know, I almost said that myself, but I didn't want to. I said, just say it. I said, if you want, I, I didn't tell him this, but I feel like telling him, you know, if you want, just use me as a reference and say, you know, what we talked about last week, it's true. Our hearts are wicked. Our thoughts are corrupt. The things we do are just, you know, it's it, it, why would God bother? But he has. And so this is the mystery that not only has he chosen Israel, but he's also chosen the Gentile people of the world. Okay, so in other words, God determined from eternity past what he would do, and the plan was fixed. However, it is a plan which he has kept unknown to his creatures until a set point would be revealed. The plan is now explained in the coming of Christ and in the forgiveness of sins, even to the Gentiles. Even those who walked with Jesus did not grasp it at first. This is seen, for example, in Acts 11.18. Okay, so I'm going to take you to Acts 11.18, which I didn't know I had that in here. I've typed this years and years ago, and it's, it's Peter's explanation of Acts chapter 10. So I'm interested to see. I haven't typed that. I'll be typing that in the month ahead. But 11.18 is um, uh, when they heard these things, they became, oh yeah, they became silent, and then they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles' repentance to life. So they had no idea. These Jews were sitting right there. Now that ought to tell us something, that they had no idea that the Gentiles would be included in this. And yet Peter was told to go and to give them the gospel. Okay, what does that tell you? Does that tell you anything? It tells you that Abram was in the picture. For well, Abram was in the picture. I'm thinking more specifically of the gospel that Peter gave. They're both the same. It's exactly, there is, there is only one it is gospel. exactly the same gospel. 
These people, hyper-dispensationalists, say that there's one gospel to the Jew, one gospel to the Gentile, and they divide up the New Testament so there's almost nothing left of it that applies to you. You got Paul's letters and everything else you can just throw away. Don't worry about it. Well, it, it, it really is maddening to see that. It's saying that that uh, what Christ did was good in one way for the Jewish people and in another for the Gentile people, and that is incorrect. What Christ did is one time, one thing for all people. The difference between a Jew and a Gentile in the gospel is zero. However, there is a difference in the application for the nation of Israel. It's the same gospel, but national Israel requires its own salvation, which we're going through in the Joshua sermons. And eventually we'll be done with them, and hopefully people will get this. But you're right, it goes back to Abram, but Abram is the father of... Jewish nation. The Jewish nation and the father of the faith of the Gentiles. Once again, it all comes back to one thing that God is doing, but he's introduced Israel for a particular reason. I'll go back maybe in, like I said, Acts 10 if we have time when we get to the next verse. But for right now, um, uh, so God has, you know, given them repentance unto salvation, okay? The mist and what does that mean when it says repentance? Just give me the definition of repentance. Change my mind. That's all that word means. If anybody uses it in the different context, they are misusing that word. The word repent simply means to change your mind. Now, if it says repentance unto life for the Gentiles, what is that talking about? It's not saying that they have to go and... Okay. You get people that give these, these gospel messages and they say, you need Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. And the next thing you need to do is you need to repent. And you need to turn from your sin and you'll be saved. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for my sins, that Christ was buried and Christ rose again. You can't change the gospel and come out without damaging it, okay? And once again, I'll introduce this thought, is that I am sick. I'm really sick and I need to get well. And so I call my doctor and I say, Dr. Uh, Travis, Dr. Travis, I'm really sick. I need to get well. So I'm going to spend the next week of my life and I'm going to get myself well and then I'm going to come into you so that you can make sure that I'm okay. That is not what you do. You go to the doctor to be fixed and then he gives you a prescription and you use that prescription to go about changing your circumstances so that you get well. The word repentance does not mean turn from your sins. And when it says repentance unto life for the Gentiles, it is speaking of their thoughts about who God is. I've changed my mind. I've been worshiping a big statue, uh, what is it, Diana, Artemis of the Ephesians. Or I've been worshiping uh, this guy from the Middle East. These people with squinty eyes came over here and they showed up and they said, there's a guy named Buddha and I've been worshiping him now for you know the past five years. Or I've been worshiping, I say squinty eyes because my wife is Japanese. I can get away with that. Okay, so um, I, I didn't know if they knew that. So anyway, um, I, whatever your idea about God is, you are changing your mind about God by hearing about Jesus and being granted life. That is what that means, okay? Um, and as I say, in this world, especially in America, but in this world today, we are so filled with Bibles and we're so filled with information about Jesus that all of a sudden it becomes necessary for you to do this and this and this and this in order to be saved. Most people in Christian history and 
I would say the vast majority of Christians in the world today still do not have their own Bible. They may not have a Bible at all in their congregation, or they may have one, okay? They heard the message of Jesus, and that is all they heard. They cannot change their habits unless they hear through discipleship or directly through the Word of God. So in America, because we've got all of this theology and all of these Bibles and all of this stuff going on, we think that we're going to insert our presuppositions about coming to Christ and force it on people. And that's not what you do. You tell people that you are a sinner. God is very angry at your sin and you need to be saved by forgiveness of sins. And here's how he did it. After that point, then you find out what makes God angry and you change it. Just like when you go to the doctor, the doctor says, your body is angry with you. You need to change these things and that will make you healthy. Okay, so be sure never to compromise the simple gospel. You're a sinner, you need a savior. Well, what did I do wrong? Do you admit that you've done something wrong? I've done a lot of things wrong in my life. Okay, you need Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. Okay, I've done that. The guy drops dead. He's the only missionary in the entire country. They have no idea what to do. They don't have a Bible. All they know is that I'm a sinner and he saved me. That's the gospel, okay? Don't confuse that beyond that point because if you do, you have given a false gospel, all right? Everything after salvation is discipleship. It is learning. It is applying what God has done for you. Okay, yes. So that's a very important point that we have to remember because if not, we get into all of the same crazy things that people get into all the time and they actually damage people. I've seen people give that, you know, the, uh, you know who I'm talking about. I don't want to give his name and embarrass him anymore, but he goes out and he tells people all the gospel on these shows. And then the last thing he says, you need to repent from your sins. And all of a sudden they're, they, they go blank and they're like, how can I do that? It's, it's like throwing all of the baggage of their life on top of them and saying, you need to get rid of all of that before you are saved. And they walk away disillusioned. Not all of them, but a lot of them go away disillusioned because they think, how am I going to fix all of this to make God happy? God will fix it. If you just come to Christ and learn what he has done, he will change your heart and you will continue to grow in him forever. Okay, but get people saved, and then, as I say, they can go and ruin their theology all on their own. Okay, the main thing to do is to tell people the simple message that they need Jesus. Okay, the mystery was hidden until a certain point. It was concealed, but now it has been revealed to the saints. Paul's words. Those in Acts 11, which I just read, 11:18, began to understand what was happening. But Christ selected Paul to be the one to fully reveal the mystery to the world through his writings. There is a different focus in Paul's writings. It's because there is a different mentality in the people he's writing to. The Jews will never have the same mentality as the Gentiles. It's not going to happen. Okay, now once they get saved and Sergio and Rhoda, they come in here and she's not a Jew. But anyway, they, they can conform to Christ in the same way but they're coming from a different perspective. And that's why there's an apostle to the Jews and there's an apostle to the Gentiles. It's not that the gospel is different, it's that the focus on the individual is different. There is a different thing going on in their, their lives and they need to have that thing 
explained to them from the proper perspective. And I am absolutely certain, I've said this a million times, I've given my defense for it, is that Paul, not anybody else, Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. And that ought to tell you something. I can defend that if you guys don't know that. I can tell you why later. But um, that ought to tell you something, is that Paul actually had to stop what he was doing, writing to the Gentiles, and he had to say, okay, I am writing to my people, and so I'm going to give it from a perspective that they will now understand. It's the same, same information, but it's being written with a different uh, flavor to it. Not because it's a different gospel, but because they are needing to grasp it from their own history, their own scriptures, their own past. You've got Aaron, you've got Melchizedek, and you've got all these things. And, you know, now there are Christians that grow up in the, the church and they have all that information now. And so it benefits them as well. But if you're somebody that has never heard of Melchizedek, you don't need to know about Melchizedek to get the focus on Jesus. But they will. They'll say, well, what about this? And what about this? And Paul takes all of that and beautifully unpackages it for them and says, there is Jesus. So it's just a different focus, okay? Paul always went to the synagogues first. Even though he gave a primary message to the Gentiles, the same message went to the Jewish people. He always went there first. Peter, when he uh, was in Galatia, was not with the Jews. He was with the Gentiles and he was talking to them about Jesus. The problem that arose in Galatia was not with the Gentiles that were being explained Jesus. The problem was with Peter. And so Paul had to correct him in Galatians chapter two. So there's a lot going on in the Bible, but the main thing to remember is that it is Jesus. He is the center of everything in there. And if we can get that right, man, is that wonderful. Okay, those in Acts 11 began to understand what was happening, but Christ selected Paul to be the one to fully reveal the mystery to the world through his writings. The saints, meaning the believers in Christ, can refer to his writings in order to fully grasp what has occurred and to look for proper doctrine in how to conduct themselves in the age of the revealed mystery. And that applies to Jews too. I mean, they just need to understand first that Jesus came to them, but it is not limited to them. And then they can say, well, if he's done this for the Gentiles, then now I can benefit from Paul's writings. If they reject Paul's writings, it's no different than you know, the liberal churches in America today that will have nothing to do with Paul. They might pull out a couple of his, you know, uh, emotional verses that twist people in the church and, oh, isn't that wonderful? And that's all they'll say. They'll never give any doctrine from Paul. Okay, well, the Jews, they wouldn't benefit with benefit unless they understood that the Gentiles were included. Once they do, then they can do that as well. It, it, everybody can benefit from it. But if you're in, it doesn't matter. Okay, life application. Whether a Jew or a Gentile, you are a saint of God if you have called on Christ Jesus. If you haven't, I don't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are not a saint, okay? Rejoice in what he has done for you. If a Jew, you are brought out from being under a heavy burden and are granted complete restoration with God through Christ. That's the Jew. He is under the bondage and the yoke of the law. Jesus was speaking to Israel, not the Gentiles, when he said, uh, come to me, and um, how did he say it? Um, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was telling them, you guys have a burden on you. You have this yoke upon you. Well, Gentiles do too, because we have our own law that Paul speaks about in Romans 2. Okay, but the yoke of the law was something that was mandatory. It was imposed upon them. They accepted the, the tenets of it. 
okay? And so they were bound under it. And Christ was saying, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will give you rest, okay? And then what, is, what does Peter call it in Acts chapter 15? That's the council in uh, Jerusalem. And Peter says, let me find it really quickly here. Peter stood up among them and he said, where are we going down here? And he said, um, uh, okay, uh, I, oh, it was before that. So I got to go back over here. God chose the Gentiles. Um, uh, here it is, verse 10, 1510. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Peter's telling the council. He's telling them. We had this yoke. We had this burden. It was lifted from us. Why are you taking that and reimposing it on Gentiles? They were never under this law. Now you're telling them that they have to be a part of it? We couldn't even bear it. That's It's a yoke. And what does Paul call it all through his writings? Bondage, bondage, bondage. Galatians. Where is it? Galatians chapter 4, I think. Hang on. Uh, it, you know, I say it, and I don't want you to think that I'm just making it up. So it says... Um, uh, it might be Galatians chapter 2 or 3. Give me just a second. He calls it, oh yeah, it's a chapter 4. And he says here, um, uh, I'll just, he's talking about the covenants. He says, but he was born according to the flesh and he of the woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are two covenants. The one in Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. It's right there. It gives birth to bondage. And so he says that they are still to this day under bondage. He says, but we who have come to Christ, just in general, you know, he's talking about it, um, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We're in the new Jerusalem, okay? We're in that the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, so there you go. The, yoke, the law is a yoke of bondage. And I don't care what precept you pull from the law. I don't care what precept, and you say, I'm imposing this on you. Okay, I am not a fan of tattoos. I don't have any on me. If people have tattoos, there is nothing in the Bible to say that you cannot have a tattoo. And the reason why that is not a point of uh, theology for the world is because there are cultures all over the world that from the day they're born, they're tattooing them. You know, these Maoris over in New Zealand. Well, you can't be saved because you got a tattoo. I'm sorry, you're going to be chucked into the abyss. It doesn't work that way, okay? That is just something that's cultural. It's a part of their culture. The tattoos that were uh, talked about in Leviticus were for a specific reason. Does anybody remember what the reason was? It was with three other things or two other things. It was uh, pertaining to the dead. Slashing yourself, don't cut yourself, don't uh, shave your hair in a certain way. It was to do with rituals to the dead. They were to acknowledge life because they were the people of life, the people of the Lord. Anyway, um, uh, and, and you know, I have no problem if people have tattoos. I just don't think that, you know, you were made in God's image. You're just the way that God wanted you. I'm not going in and having surgical surgery to pull my face back and make me look more handsome. It wouldn't work anyway. But, um, you know, I, I just, to me, this is my body. I want to leave it the way it is. But I have no problem with people having tattoos. If they do, I'm not going to say, you know, you really shouldn't do that. Anyway, um, uh, it, pork. You know, you got churches all over the place. And I'm going to talk about that. That was what I was going to bring up. And I'm not going to do it yet unless the next verse for some reason it does, but 
pork. That's another thing under the law of Moses. If you tell somebody you shouldn't be eating that, you are reinserting a law that never existed anywhere except in the law of Moses. You are reinserting the law and you are doing exactly what Peter was doing, okay? Tithing, if you tell somebody you need to tithe, okay? And I know churches love to bring that one out and they pull all the verses out of their proper context and they say you need to tithe. That is a precept of the law of Moses. That was never anywhere else. And the tithing verses, as everybody here knows perfectly, because I've said them 8 million times, even the tithing verses that are given in Deuteronomy 14 are never properly taught in churches, ever. Because if they were, the pastor wouldn't teach them. That's all there is to it, because he, he would have to lose out on his, his thing. So don't reimpose the law in any way, shape, or form, and you will be doing well in the Lord's eyes. Those in Acts 11 began to understand what was happening, but Christ selected Paul to be the one to fully reveal the mystery to the world through his writings. The saints, meaning the believers in Christ, can refer to his writings in order to fully grasp what has occurred and to look for proper doctrine and how to conduct themselves in the age of the revealed mystery. Life application. Did I read that already? Yeah, yes. I think you did. The life application too? Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I think I, I stopped halfway through it. Uh, yes, if you were a Jew brought out from being under a heavy burden and are granted complete restoration with God through Christ. I stopped there. If a Gentile, without ever having been under the yoke of the law, you are brought directly into the people of God by simple faith in what he has done. That's it. Faith and you are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. And even Israel today is not in the commonwealth of Israel because they rejected Christ. The promises of Israel have to come through Christ eventually. So we are brought into that commonwealth. If a Gentile, without ever having been under the yoke of the law, you are brought directly into the people of God by simple faith in what he has done. Rejoice in this and give God the glory. How wonderful it is. How absolutely wonderful what God has done. Now, as I said, Paul will bring up the law of conscience, etc., in Romans chapter 2. And so you need to understand the context of that as well. We all are under some type of law. Okay, we're under a law of death, that's for certain, because Adam, our first father, who was our federal head, broke a law, a single law that was in the negative, and that has affected every single human being since then. So we're under the law of death and condemnation. There's nothing that we can do about that without Jesus. That is the default position. Okay, I remember when computers were first coming out, I didn't understand. People were saying, well, default, default. And I, I had no idea what that word meant. And I went to a dictionary and I looked up the word default and I'm like, I, I don't understand what he's saying. I, I'm reading the words and it's not making any sense. And nowadays it's the most common thing in the world to understand the word default. This is where something belongs. And if you make a change, it'll be over here. But if you need to correct it, you just go back to default and then you start again, okay? Default takes you back to the point where things belong. Our point where we belong as human beings is condemnation, John 3.18, okay? That's all there is to it. Everybody knows John 3.16. Nobody cares about John 3.18. It is our default position, okay? You are condemned already. What you need is to, mom's shaking her head. You need to have that change made in your life and only Christ can do that. Um, 127. Just don't default on a loan. Don't default on a loan. Don't do it. Anyhow, one other question real quick. You said Bob's name, so I have to ask, is he okay? Uh, you know, I was going to call Mike, and I got busy again. It was yesterday morning. I'm thinking, I've got to call Mike today, okay? And 
I got busy and I didn't call. I want to know how Bob is and if he can be visited because I don't even know where he's at right now. Uh, you know, and he's they're a long way away, and I know they're visiting him, so I don't feel as bad. But I would like to be able to go up and see him, and I just got myself busy. Yesterday was one of those days, and uh, so then today I'm only at the house for a short time. Then I left, and I've been out all day long doing stuff after twelve o'clock. So, so it's on uh, both our list to figure out. We need to find out. I just need to remind myself to call him tomorrow and find out because I, I, it just bothers me when I, I, you know, I got these people on my mind. I always remember things when I'm like at the mall taking out the garbage or mowing the lawn nothing on my mind and I remember all the people and I pray for people and I'm doing the things that I you know should be doing all day long and then I get back home and there's 8,000 emails and I think ah oh, and then you know, I just what's that well you're cutting the lawn out of Cell phone, would, would cell phone will never happen. That will never, ever, ever happen, okay? When they say you have to have a cell phone in order to eat, I will be eating fish, and I hate fish. I can tell you that I will sit on the dock and, and catch fish because I am not going to have a cell phone. That's not going to happen. Um, I, you know, when, when we left, when that wastewater plant closed and uh, they uh, were going over to the county, and they had all of the cell phones that we had to carry, you know, and I had the nicest one in the company because I ran the, the operation of the wastewater side of things, and it was a beautiful cell phone, and they said, everybody can keep their cell phones, and uh, Jim walked in, and he said, you can keep yours, Charlie. I said, no, you can keep mine, and that was the last time I've had one of those. I did carry one. Somebody loaned me when I went around the state in 2010, but, but uh, no. And that pad's not a phone, right? What's that? that well, that Sergio has that for me. I don't okay, use this okay. other so than for church. That thing doesn't get used. Yes, Sergio made sure that I have that so we can con communicate with that thing there. Because if we don't have that, then we don't have them. And we love them. Okay, okay. 27. Okay, 27. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, this is also close. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, the one he's just talking about, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the revealed mystery. Christ was willing to do what he did, not just to save the Jews, but to save the whole world. Okay, wonderful stuff. And I understand even to this day, I said it in a sermon one or two weeks ago, is that to this day the Jews think it is all about them. They are an important part of what God is doing, but they are not what God is doing. Jesus is. They are a, a point where God can glory in what he has done and really glory in them, okay? But the same is true, you know, once again, the same is true. I, I'll say it at the opening of this week's sermon is that we are a nation that is not at all unlike Israel, okay? And that's becoming more and more apparent every day. And while Lothar and I were driving around uh, last week while he was here, he was saying the same thing about Germany, and he was saying the same thing about the church. We were listening to Jeremiah while we were driving around, and he said, it's just like he's speaking to the church today. We're completely completely away from Christ. We've completely left him out of the picture. We've rejected the Lord entirely and we're doing our own thing and we're doing it as wickedly as we can. And he says, I just can't believe the words to Israel 
are relevant to us today. And if you can't see that, then you're the blinded one because that is all there is to it. We have rejected this word. We have rejected the Lord of this word and we're just playing religion all over the world. Okay, it's so sad to see. But anyway, um, uh, the words to them, 27, to them God willed to make known. The words to them are referring to the saints as stated in the previous verse. It is to the saints that God willed. Paul's words, God willed. The words are emphatic in the Greek. Thus it reads, to whom has willed God. It was God's sovereign choice. We talked about that a while ago. Alone to make known what are the riches. God chose and we are the recipients. But he's the one that made the choice when he was going to do these things, how he was going to do these things. We know this is true even from the book of Revelation. Chapter 13, he says this. Let me see here. 13, it's verse 8. I know it is. He says there. 5, 6. Yes, 8. Okay. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, God knew that he would send his son to be slain. He knew that even before he created the first speck of dust. Jesus Christ was destined to go to the cross, okay? So um, the words are emphatic. It was God's sovereign choice alone to make known what are the riches. Every single thing that has happened in the redemptive process is God's will, everything, okay? People talk about whether man has free will or not, and you can debate that all day long. The fact is that yes, we do, okay? We have free will. Um, to say that you don't have free will is to exercise free will, but that's a, a side point. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, to say that you don't have free, or what they will do is they'll say, if you had free will, then uh, God is not sovereign over you. And that's not true. God knows the choice that you're going to make. He has done everything in the process to make it available to you, and he knows whether you're going to accept it or not. His foreknowledge does not change your free will one iota. But the fact is that we do have free will. And if we didn't have free will and we were consigned, as Calvinists would say, to uh, we are utterly corrupt and we cannot call on God, okay, without him regenerating us, which is being reborn, I'm sorry, born again. And then after that, you call on Jesus and you're saved, okay? So they have a two-step process. Being born again is not being saved to them. But if that was true and we were living out our lives without free will, we would be as utterly corrupt as we could be because that would be our default position and we would we we wouldn't be getting corrupt we would already be corrupt okay we're in the process of getting corrupt because we are rejecting what god has offered okay so the very fact that we are getting corrupt i'm talking about the state of the world shows that we have free will but once again it's it's not sound to think that we don't have free will all right we do we exercise it. God knows it, and it does not change a thing in God just because he knows. And it doesn't mean that uh, God has made the choice for us or any of those things. We've talked about that in the doctrine sermons. And if you don't understand, there's, I think, 11 doctrine sermons. Go watch them, and you'll get that. But the riches of God are many. The word indicates a great amount in number or quantity and thus abundance. These are the riches that Paul was speaking of. Okay, these riches are described by Paul in Romans 2 and elsewhere, but in Romans 2 include his one goodness. This is his benign nature. 
He is a compassionate God who is in no way arbitrary or vindictive. And we know that that is true because if he is God, and we know he is, then he cannot be arbitrary or vindictive. Because if he was, that would mean that he was making changes within the stream of time in himself, and then he would not be God because God is outside of the creation that he created. That's how we know that Islam is not a correct religion, is because God is arbitrary, he is vindictive, he changes. The nature of God himself in the Quran changes. And because that is the case, it is not God. He cannot be God. Okay, the God of the Bible is not changing at all. We change in relation to him. But his nature is goodness. It is compassion. It is uh, long-suffering. All the things that God is. And when we change, those things seem to change from our perspective in God. But they do not. All right. So, he is compassionate God who is in no way arbitrary or vindictive. Two, his forbearance. This reflects God's restraint when judgment would be expected under almost any conceivable circumstance, like America today, he still withholds his wrath, understanding that we are prone to sin from birth. Okay? Three, because of his forbearance, he is also long-suffering. The concept shows that not only does he withhold his wrath, but he is also slow to anger. And when we think of the word anger, once again, it's not God getting angry, even though that's the way the Bible will portray it. It's for our benefit. God, we, have, we are the ones that have changed. So when it says that God has gotten angry, it's because we have changed in relation to him. The pillar. The pillar. You've got a, this solid pillar. I'm doing the right thing. I'm on this side of God. And then I move over to this side and I'm doing the wrong thing. The pillar hasn't changed at all. The pillar is unmoved. And that is what God is. He is the unmoved mover of things. He is the one that never changes in his being. Okay. And so if we can remember that perspective, and this is found, it's funny because I see I put that in my notes and I was thinking this while reading the first words of this uh, 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 commentary. So my brain is still actually working. Is Exodus 34. This is the exact verses that I was thinking of, and then I looked down, and there it is. Exodus 34, it's verses 6 and 7. And what wonderful words. I'm telling you, absolutely. I'll go back a little bit so we can get the context. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But that's the nature of God. He's wonderfully good, but when we get on his bad side, it's not that God is purposefully and actively punishing the children. It's Here's the lesson that you can learn from that. I'm a loser. I raise up my children and they're losers. And they're going to raise up their children and they're losers. And one generation follows another. And the Lord is punishing them because of the loser father that started the whole ball rolling. Okay? But if you've got a godly parent, parents, and then you have children that are raised up properly, the Lord is giving them his favor. Not because he loves them and hates them. It's because they 
did not learn the way of the Lord and they have turned from him and rejected him. And so the punishment is being visited upon them because of their own actions, okay? It's not that he is purposefully saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be mean to this guy and I'm not gonna be mean to this guy because he's nice and he's bad. It's because they have rejected him, okay? And then you see that all the way through the Bible. You see it all the way through the Bible, especially go to Ezekiel 18. I think that's the uh, chapter you wanna read there. And let me just go there really quickly. If it's not, then I'll find it for you because I'm not going to read it. I'll let you read it. But Ezekiel, I'm pretty sure it's Ezekiel 18. And yeah, that's it. However, if he begets a son who sees blah, 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 and his father and the punishment of what is going on in the individual, Ezekiel 18, go read that. That is the nature of God on display. Okay. Such riches are these, as these are required. Better read that again. Such riches as these are included in, Paul's words, the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. The Old Testament detail deals almost exclusively with a single line of people who became Israel. God revealed himself to them, and they were considered the people of God. However, in Christ, that honorable title now extends to any and to all, but there is a condition on it. This is the mystery. This is Paul's words, which the musturion of, in Greek, the mystery that Paul speaks of. He, the apostle to the Gentiles, is making it fully known to the Gentile people of the world who now can share in these riches of God. Okay? You can speculate all day long on why, um, um, what's his name, um, uh, the Lord selected Paul. But it's kind of obvious if you think of who he was. He was a Jew, so he was trained, he was of the Jewish culture. He understood the culture. But more, he was a Pharisee. And so he understood the scriptures, okay? He was a person that had a grasp of them. He was fully trained in them. And so he was aware of what scripture talked about. But more than that, he was a Jew who was not from Israel. He lived in Tarsus, where he was born and raised, and so he would have spoken the language there. He would have interacted with people there, okay? I know there are Jewish settlements, in, even in America, where they never get out of being in their own little settlement. That's not the way most Jews are. They intermingle with the society around them. They enter into business. Paul was a tent maker, and so obviously he made tents for Gentiles. You know, you can only make so many tents for Jews before you don't have any more Jews to make tents for, right? He, he was a person that had the understanding of what was going on. So he was the perfect person in so many ways to be this person picked by the Lord. God knew. He made the right choice. He didn't make any mistakes. All of the apostles that he had under him when he was in his earthly ministry were from the land of Israel. They were not qualified to go out and do the... Peter, perfect example of that. Peter perfectly fits that. He was trained by Jesus. He knew all of the things, and yet he couldn't get away from his own Jewishness when he was around the Gentiles. And the Jews came and he, he withdrew from them. Okay, so uh, Paul was the right person to, uh, there was no mistake in this. All right, you can speculate all day long, but just think about the man, who he was, the determination he had that he writes about, the way that he was able to handle people. Hey, he was a perfect choice. Everything about what God does is always perfect. Okay. Uh, he was the one to make known to the Gentile people of the world who now can share in these riches of God. He makes this explicitly known by finishing with, which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. The words Christ in you indicate what has occurred in a person, Jew or Gentile makes no difference, who believes in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay, Christ is in you. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is a aravon, a guarantee of your salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Okay, if that is true, and if God cannot make a mistake because God knows everything immediately and intuitively, if that is true, God cannot make a mistake, and if he saves you and seals you, and then he takes that seal away from you, it means we are not dealing with the God of the Bible. We are dealing with a failing God. You cannot lose your salvation. God knew every mistake that you were going to make before he ever sealed you. He made an eternal decree, just like he did before Israel. I will covenant with this people, and no matter how bad they are, I will always keep them as a people forever because I am covenant keeping when they are not, okay? And so when God does this for you, Christ in you, you are saved. You are now brought into the commonwealth of Israel. You were brought into the sonship of God because of Jesus Christ. It is done, okay? The moment the belief is exercised, the person is sealed with the Holy Spirit and thus saved. He moves from Adam to Jesus and has a new and glorious hope, okay? That's the default position now being changed. We have the default position which says, I am condemned already. David said it in the 51st Psalm, I think it's verse six. Okay, I was sinful from birth. I was uh, uh, sinful from my mother's womb, okay? And the Bible confirms that all the way through, all the way through, we have original sin in us. Adam is our federal head, we are in Adam. It is done. We're separated from God forever. We are condemned already. But the Son is the one that changes our default position. We now go from this to this, and it's default. And it can't go back. It is now something that God has decreed by a decree, which is eternal because of his eternal being. All right? So he moves us from Adam to Jesus and has a new and glorious hope. There is a slight variation in some manuscripts concerning the words, which is Christ in you. Some have it as masculine, and thus it would be referring to the riches. Others have it as neuter, and thus it would be referring to the mystery. So you can make a note. Some translations will, uh, or I'm sorry, some of the manuscripts. You wouldn't catch it in the English, but in the Greek, okay? It's either the riches or the mystery. Either way. The fact that Christ is now in those who believe, this has become our hope of glory. Paul's words, hope of glory. There's an article in front of the word glory. Now, I say this all the time, it's not always necessary to include the article from the Greek. Sometimes it would be harmful to do so. You have to take the context. But in this case, it more accurately and should be rightly translated, the glory. Okay, so we'll read it again. Which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. Okay, I guarantee if you go to Young's literal translation, he will say the glory. He knows when to do it. He's very astute about including the article when it's necessary. All right, those who have received Christ have not yet obtained the full measure of the glory of Christ. Rather, it indicates a future hope which will be realized when he returns for us and when we are glorified. Man, I can't wait for that. I know everybody's antsy about the rapture and, and uh, there's a lot of speculation about it and people making dates and stuff and we're not supposed to be doing that, all right? We've got a job to do here. 
We're not going to know when the rapture is. I hate to tell you if, if you're uh, reading those sites and that's not going to happen. Um, there's a couple things that will tell us that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, you can go watch the commentary that I did on that a while ago. It's on uh, the, uh, the weekly prophecy report. Instead of doing a regular one, I did it on the timing of the rapture. All right, we're not going to know. And there's no point in speculating on who the Antichrist is because Paul is very clear in his timing or his timeline from 2 Thessalonians 2 that we are not going to know who the Antichrist is. He will be revealed after, after our glorification, after the rapture, okay? And so there's no point in saying, oh, that's a, this guy is the Antichrist. And I got the stupidest email a day ago. Um, uh, Sergio got it too. I, I, I just can't believe how, I, I think it's 23 September or someday, this email from some lady and she says, Moses and Elijah and Jesus are gonna appear over Jacksonville. And there, it, it just went on like this for a, a whole page of this stuff. And I'm wow. thinking, this person's really putting herself on the line because when it doesn't happen, you know, just think of the embarrassment. Yeah. Think of the embarrassment that you're causing people like this. We're entered into the, the uh, tribulation period and all these crazy things. And I, I, I didn't know that Sergio had gotten it. And so I sent it to him. And he said, no, not you too. Yeah, he was like, <laughs> I got that too, you know. Anyway, I, I don't know. People seem to have a, a need to do these things to be popular or something, but all it does is damage the body. And it, it damages the body in the eyes of non-believers so that they just think we're a bunch of foolish people. It's very, very sad. Anyway, um, if I still have the email and you want it, I'll send it to you. No, um, thanks. I, 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 I know I deleted it, but it's probably still in the out. My, wait a minute. Wait a minute. No. Got, yeah, no, we've got time. I just, no, I, I'm sure that if I go to the, um, hang on a second. Go to your trash. I go to my trash, and then all I have to do is type in Sergio's name because I sent it to Sergio. That's, I, that's, that's all I need to do. It's loading. Hurry up. Okay. Okay, Sergio. Okay, so we're going to go there, and um, let's see here. It, there shouldn't be many. Uh, sermon. Okay. Ah, Moses and Elijah coming. 923. This is it. Uh, hang on. Um, let's see here. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but yes, Jacksonville Beach, Florida. Yes, best day of my life. Oh, it's even at 19th Avenue South, Jacksonville. I mean, she's got it pinpointed. Uh, they'll be coming over the waters towards the land at that location, but that will not be their first stop. And she goes through all this. Yeah, hear ye, hear ye. Warning. Would avoid transportation during 923 to, uh, during 923 a.m. to 1123 a.m., Wonders of God seen in the sky may cause injury. I mean, this. <laughs> okay, that is not healthy. Okay. And I can just see people reading that and going to Jacksonville. Church field trip? Or worship. Saying, like, oh gosh, all those Christian friends of ours. I know they're drooling over this too. And, like, it's like, come on, stop. It's, it's like, just. Unbelievable. Okay, so if somebody needs to have that email, send me an email and I'll send it to you. I hope you don't okay. because it's not worth your time. But I did laugh with Sergio over it, okay? Um, uh, rather, it indicates a future hope which will be realized when he returns for us when we are glorified. It is a glory for which we have been destined and nothing will thwart its coming and consummation in us. Such is the hope of the believer in Christ. It is a grounded hope in the sure promises of God. Thank God for Jesus. Okay, life application. When we stand at the graveside of a believer in Christ, we have the absolute guarantee that death cannot hold that 
person. We lost Bumpy last week. I'm very sorry. I'll, I'll not see her again in this life. I've known her for 16 years. I've seen her recently every single Saturday, but for years I'd see her at least once or twice a month, okay? Uh, she died, and I uh, will miss her, but I had one of the people that goes with us during the winter when he's down here say, do you think that she was saved? And I, I, I really feel confident she was, okay? She turned from a very wicked lifestyle. She was a wonderful person. She was so helpful. She was just a nice person, okay? And you never saw her. I mean, you just didn't see her without one of those little cigars. They, they weren't cigarettes. They were these little, like, Clint Eastwood things. And she just... She loved those things, but what a nice person. And I'm just going to miss her. Every time we go to the projects, there's, it's going to be like a void there. But I got Tasha. So um, she yeah. gave me her dog last year, and, and yeah. uh, so I got a little memory of her, at least for now. But um, when we stand at the graveside of a believer in Christ, we have the absolute guarantee that death cannot hold that person. There is a time for mourning because we will miss the presence of the one that we have cherished and shared in life with. But... There should also be a sense of joy that the great and eternal promises of God cannot be overcome by the death which we have faced. It is but a temporary separation which will be ended with the blast of the trumpet and the gathering together of the saints of God. Man, I can't wait for that day. I know, I just, I, I can't wait and I get so excited, but... Um, uh, 23rd. In a, yeah, 23rd. Yeah, you know. Uh, well, no, because no, signs and wonders. Signs and wonders, and it, don't drive during those hours because you might get hurt. I mean, the whole thing is just—it's just. Oh, um, okay. So I'm because we only got like seven minutes left. We're not going to have time for one more. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 10 now, and um, let me circle that so I remember where we are next week. 128, and uh, that's um, 20. Look, I'm going to save chalk here. Watch this. Oh, you're gonna make yes. it look, look at there. Look at we oh, say chalk there. Okay, that was that was that was important. That was important. Okay. Um, okay. So we're gonna go to Acts chapter ten, and uh, we'll just. I don't remember what I was thinking now, but I know it'll come to me when we get there. So um, let's see here. Acts two, three, four, Peter. five. Okay. And when we when we uh, think of it, we need to pray for uh, Jody, uh, Don, and Jody because they're gonna be traveling for the next three weeks. So. Um, uh, you are required to tune in to the services when we're live. If not, I'm sorry, but okay. <laughs> okay, let's see here. Um, we have. Uh, are you taking off? I got All right, go. Yes, you got to go, tutor. So get at it, tutor. Do. Um, let's see here. Where was I? Um, uh, uh, rise, Peter. Kill and eat, and then. Uh, uh, Oh yeah, on the next day Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him and the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand, I might stand up, I myself am also a man. Okay, so he's going in there and he's talking to these people about uh, salvation. And I have heard, I know exactly what I was going to say, I have heard many times, and this is in my commentary, so if you read the commentary, you can take a nap now, but um, I've heard many times, my neighbors believe this, that their uh, uh, pastor at the church they were at said that, well, that doesn't mean that uh, this isn't speaking of dietary freedom. This is only speaking of the Gentiles. And that's very clear from the sheet coming down and, and the context. And the first thing that I said to them within a, a, a tenth of a second is, what did they have in their stomachs? 
did they have to go through the dietary cleansing of Israel and, you know, wait until evening and wash and do all these things in order to receive the Holy Spirit? They were standing there with their, their sausage in their stomachs and they heard the word and the Spirit came upon them. To divide that passage and say this only applies to Gentiles, but it doesn't apply to the dietary standards of Israel is one of the most hypocritical things I could think a pastor could say in the pulpit. If you are a Gentile and you are saved by Jesus, he's saving you despite what's in your stomach. He's saving you because of who you are as a human being. Okay, so don't let people fool you on that type of thing. Think it through to the logical end. Don't just stop with what they say and say, see, you're still obligated to not eat pork. I can't even imagine somebody saying that anyway, but to use that passage from Acts chapter 10 to say that you are still under the law of Moses and that you can't do these things or that you have to tithe or that you, and we went through some of them earlier, that is insane because there isn't a person on this planet that does what the law of Moses says to do today. Not one, because we don't have a temple. We don't have Jerusalem with a temple. We don't have a sacrificial system at the temple. And we're not included in that anyway, because that temple was only for Jews. Gentiles could go so far and no further, okay? My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. But it only went so far as far as entering into the tabernacle. And anybody that wasn't of Israel or hadn't met the requirement requirements of being joined into Israel could not go into that temple, okay? They could not participate in it up to a certain point. They had to stay outside and just pray to the God from outside of there. So when people say things like that to you, tell them once, tell them a second time, and then the Bible says have nothing to do with them. They are divisive. They're whatever Paul says in that verse, okay? Don't let people run you around like that. Think things through to their logical conclusion. Check what the word says. Paul says in Romans 14, I think, you know, food for the stomach and stomach for food. Uh, God's not worried about those type of things, okay? Those things were put into the law of Moses for a reason. If you don't know, go watch the Leviticus 8, I'm sorry, Leviticus 11 sermons and every single animal that is identified, everything about the animal points to Jesus and proper doctrine within the faith. Everything. There's not an animal in there that doesn't point to something that Paul has actually written about. Okay, so uh, the law is done. It is annulled. It is obsolete. And we are free in Christ now to learn how to conduct our lives in Christ. Okay, and that's what we should be doing. So um, there you go. It's time to close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in this wonderful, beautiful word. Lord, we thank you. We pray that uh, many people will want to seek it out and to seek you out from it before the terrible day is, that is coming comes. Lord, it's a, a, it's a time of disaster in this world. It's a time of things changing very rapidly, and we can see that the end is probably not far off. So help us to be responsible and to tell people about Jesus while we can. Please help us to be responsible in that manner. May it be so, and may it be to your glory alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let me back this up so we can say goodbye to these folks. And, all right, that goes there. We're going to push break.